I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Hey, kids. Uh, how's it going? It's my new catchphrase, my new opening statement. Um, I'm all right. It's weird to hear other people's podcasts when you do your own. Uh, I always think mine is of the lowest quality and that I have nothing to offer. Uh, but then I listen to other podcasts, which I will not name, which are of a higher quality, uh, and they're on some big networky thing like iHeartRadio, and you hear them with horrible editing, or they're doing a, some sort of Skype call or whatever, Zoom, and the audio gets all bad, and they don't do anything to fix it. And then I think, oh my god, I'm actually not that bad. Uh, I've learned that when you have a Skype call with your other podcast host, like I do with Ben for uh, the Book Boys, he, uh, we finally figured out, oh, if he records his voice on his side and I record my voice on my side, I can put them together and they sound good, instead of fighting with horrible connections that come with the internet. Uh, I'm a lowly little independent podcast guy. How come I figured that out? And these guys, uh, who are given money by iHeartRadio, how come they couldn't figure it out? So now I'm just angry. Why am I not more popular when clearly I have the better production value? Oh yeah, that's right. It depends on if you're interesting or not. Which I'm not. Uh, and also I don't want to pay money to, to try to advertise. How do you advertise something like this? I've thought about that recently when I was looking at my uh, repaying my podcast hosting subscription. And I looked at the stats and I'm like, ah, look at that. Yeah, like five people have listened this month. Well, good for me. And then I thought, uh, yeah, what if I try to let people know about me? Uh, I did try to post on Instagram for a while, and that was stupid. Uh, and then uh, Twitter, you know, no one ever is looking. Uh, so then I thought, what, what if you try to... How do you advertise something like this? Is it some banner on Facebook saying, uh, you too lazy to read? Do you want me to read to you? That doesn't work out. That's not something someone's going to respond to or click on. I mean, maybe they click on it because they think it's some sort of fetish website. But, uh, so, no. I guess I'll just quietly sit back here with uh, not nearly as interesting content, but better production quality, which is what I strive to excel in. And that's pretty much it. I'm recording a lot of episodes in a row, so I don't have anything to talk about from one episode to another. Uh, I literally just recorded last night. I guess I could talk about the great night's sleep I had. I had a really nice good night's sleep. That happened between then and now. Uh, my day at work is fine. Uh, you know, the clock's ticking. I'm not going to have a job at some point in the future. And uh, so it's kind of weird to still be working on stuff and have everyone talking jovially about, uh, oh, this project's going well. And I say, aha, yes, it is. And then I think I won't be here. It's like having terminal cancer and everyone's just kind of ignoring it which is also a horrible, a horrible comparison. I'm not a good person. 
Well, with that, let's move on with the show. So, when you don't get out of the house very often, uh, you look forward to the little things. Like grocery shopping as a way to see other human beings. And you find yourself uh, scanning them, staring at them, a lot more than you normally would. Uh, not in a creepy way, like a, like a checking some lady out kind of way. That's just creepy. But uh, more like in a, oh, you're another human being. I rarely see those anymore, except for my own children. Uh, look at the pants you're wearing. That's an interesting choice. Uh, I wonder what your nose and mouth look like underneath the mask. And so, when someone talks to you uh, at the grocery store, you have more patience for them than you normally would because you're desperate to talk to another human being that uh, you don't see all the time like your kids. So as I was looking at the coconuts in the produce aisle, thinking that it's weird that coconuts are in season, uh... A man came up to me and said, Ah, it's like we're on an island. And I said, Ah, yes, it's just like being on a desert, a desert island. And then he said, uh, It's a lot like Treasure Island, uh, from the Scottish novelist, poet, and writer uh, of other stories like The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and A Child's Garden of Verses. Uh, that author is Robert Louis Stevenson. I just thought that was interesting. He said, you know, he was born on the 13th of November, 1815. He died December 3rd, 1894. And I thought, it's a weird thing that you walk around carrying in your head. Um, and so then I went over to the Triscuits, and he followed me, telling me about how he was born and educated in Edinburgh. Uh, he suffered from a serious bronchial trouble for much of his life, uh, but continued to write prolifically and travel widely in defiance of his poor health. He said, tapping on the box of Triscuits, and as if implying that Triscuit dust in my lungs would produce some of the same effects. And so I said, uh, okay, I keep that in mind. Thank you. And I went over to look at the mayonnaise and Tabasco sauce. And uh, I thought I'd avoided him for a while. And uh, But then I heard a, a creaking of uh, a shopping cart. His one wheel was kind of wiggly. And I recognized that as being his, because that's how he came up to me in the first place. And, uh, and from a distance, from all the way at the other end of the aisle, he yells, uh, As a young man, he mixed in London literary circles, receiving encouragement from Andrew Lang, Edmund Grassi, uh, Leslie Stevenson, and, and W.E. Henley. And I said, well, I'm, a, I'm familiar with W.E. Henley, uh, but I didn't want to tell him I had a podcast, because, God, he'd probably bug me and try to figure out what it was. Uh... He said that, oh, W.E. Henley, oh, yeah, he, he provided the model for Long John Silver. Did you know that? Uh, in the book Treasure Island. And in 1890, uh, he settled in Samoa, where, alarmed at European and American encroachment on the South Sea Islands, uh, it was writing turned away from romance and adventure towards a, a darker realism. And he died at his home in 1894. And I said, well, all right, well, have a good day. I'm going to go check out now. And so I meandered and... Uh, was so I could see the checkout aisle, it was like a little bit of the distance, but to get there, you have to go past the carbonated water aisle where they have bubbly. And I was like, oh, oh man, I could really treat myself tonight with a case of bubbly. Just sit around, drink can after can, and not worry about it adding to the size of my dump truck. Uh, but he swooped in from out of nowhere with a huge pack of Chubb's wipes. 
which made me question what he needs those for, because he looked like an older man, and he wouldn't uh, have children. He said, uh, a celebrity of this lifetime. And I said, ah, Jesus. And I started trying to scooch away, but I could hear him queaking or squeaking behind me. Uh, Stevenson's critical reputation has fluctuated since his death, though today his works are held in general acclaim. In 2018, he was ranked just behind Charles Dickens hmm, as the 26th most translated author in the world. And then he started to go on and on about the death of Stevenson. About how weird it was that he was talking with his wife and straining to open a bottle of wine when he suddenly said, uh, What's that? And his wife, and he asked his wife, Does my face look strange? And then he collapsed. He died a few hours later, probably of a cerebral hemorrhage. And he was only 44. And the Samoans liked him so much they surrounded his body with a watch guard during the night and bearing him on their shoulders to a nearby Mount Vera, Vera, where they buried him on the spot overlooking the sea and uh, land donated by the British Acting Vice Council. Uh, so, that's, uh, it was a pretty interesting trip to the grocery store. But I learned a lot about Robert Louis Stevenson, which made me decide to read our next story. The Body Snatcher by Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, every night in the year, uh, four of us sat in the small parlor at George of the George of Debenham, the Undertaker, and the Landlord, and Fetz, and myself. Sometimes there would be uh, more, but blow high, uh, blow low, come rain or snow or frost, and we four would each be planted on this particular armchair. Fetz, that was a an old drunken Scotchman, a man of education, obviously, and a man of some property since he lived in idleness. Uh, he had come to Debenham uh, years ago while still young and uh, by a mere continuance of living had grown to be an adopted townsman. Uh, his blue camlet cloak uh, was a local antiquity uh, like the church spire. His place in the parlor, uh, uh, the antiquity, oh, I just read that same line. God, I hate reading paper books. It, my head tilted a little bit. Next thing you know, everything got crooked. Like the church fire, his place of parlor, George, his absence from church, his old uh, crap, crapulous, wow, uh, disreputable vices, were all things, of course, at Debenham, and he had some vague radical opinions and some fleeting eh, infidelities in which he would now and again set forth and, and emblaze with tottering slaps upon the table. He drank uh, rum, Five glasses regularly in the evening, and for a greater portion of his night visit, uh, uh, the George sat with his glass on his right hand and in a stately, melancholy, alcoholic saturation. Uh, we called him the doctor, for he was supposed to have some special knowledge of medicine, and had been known uh, upon a pinch to set a fracture uh, or reduce a dislocation, but beyond these slight particulars, uh, we had no knowledge of his character and antecedents. Uh, on one dark winter night, it had struck nine sometime before the landlord joined us. Uh, there was a sick man in the George. Oh, the George is a place. I'm reading this as if it's like they're inside a man. A great neighboring proprietor suddenly struck down with apoplexy on his way to Parliament. And the great man's still greater London doctor had been telegraphed to his bedside. It was the first time that such a thing had happened in Debenham, for the railway was but newly opened and we were all uh, proportionally moved by the occurrence. He's come, said the landlord after he filled his lighted pipe. Uh, he, said I, uh, who, uh, not the doctor? Himself, uh, replied our host. 
What's his name? Dr. McFairlane, said the landlord. Fetz was far through his third tumbler, stupidly fuddled, now uh, nodding over, now staring mazily around him, but at this last word he seemed to waken and repeated the name uh, McFarlane uh, twice, quietly enough the first time, but with a sudden emotion at the second. Yes, said the landlord. That's his name, Dr. Wolf McFarlane. The Fetz became instantly sober. Oh, his eyes awoke. His voice became clear and loud and steady. Uh, his language, uh, forcible and earnest. We were all startled by the transformation, as if a uh, man had risen from the dead. I beg your pardon, he said. I am afraid I have not been paying much attention to your talk. Who is Wolf McFarlane? And then, when he had heard the landlord out, it cannot be, it cannot be, he added. And yet, I would like well to see him face to face. Do you know him, doctor? asked the undertaker with a gasp. <laughs> with a gasp? God for <gasps> Do you know him, doctor? <laughs> Seems weird. God forbid, was the reply. And yet the name is a strange one. There were too much to fancy to. Tell me, uh, landlord, is he old? Well, said the host, he's not a young man, uh, to be sure, but his hair is, is white. Yeah, but he looks younger than you. He is older, though, uh, years older, but with a slap upon the table. It's the rum you see in my face, uh, rum and sin. This man, perhaps, may have an easy conscience and a good digestion. What? Conscience, hear me speak. You would not think I was some oh, good old decent Christian, uh, would you not? Uh, but no, not I. I never canted. Voltaire might have canted if he stood in my shoes with the, with the brains with the rattling Phillips of his bald head. The brains were clear and active, and I saw and made no deductions. If you, if you know this, Doctor, I ventured to remark after a somewhat awful pause, uh, I should gather that you do not share the landlord's good opinion. Fetz paid me no regard. Yes, he said with a sudden decision. I must see him face to face. Yeah, there was another pause. Then a door was closed rather sharply on the first floor, and a step was heard upon the stair. And that's a doctor, cried the landlord. Look sharp, and you can catch him. It was but two steps for the small parlor to the door of the old George Inn. Oh, it's an inn, not a city, not a man, but an inn. The wide oak staircase landed almost in the street. There was room for a turkey rug, a turkey rug, and nothing more between the threshold and the last round of descent. But this little space was every evening brilliantly lit up. Uh, not only by the light upon the stair and the great signal lamp below the sign, but by the warm radiance of the barroom window. The George thus brightly advertised itself to passers-by in the cold street. Fetz walked steadily to the spot, and we, who were hanging behind, beheld the two men meet, as one of them had phrased it face-to-face. Dr. McFarlane was alert and vigorous. Oh, his white hair uh, set off a pale and placid, although energetic countenance. Uh, he was richly dressed in the finest of broadcloth, uh, the whitest of linen, with a great gold watch chain and studs and spectacles of the same precious material. Ah, he wore a broad folded tie, white and speckled with lilac, and carried on his arm a comfortable driving coat of fur. Well, there is no doubt, but he became his years, breathing, as he did, of wealth and consideration. 
and it was a surprising contrast uh, to see our parlor sot, uh, bald, uh, dirty, uh, pimpled, <laughs> and robed in his old camlet cloak, confront him at the bottom of the stairs. McFarlane, he said somewhat loudly, more like a, a herald than a friend. And the great doctor pulled up short at the fourth step, as though the familiarity of the address surprised and uh, somewhat shocked his dignity. Yeah, Toddy McFarlane, repeated Fance. The London man almost staggered. He stared uh, for the swiftest of seconds at the man before him, glanced behind him with a sort of scare, and then it started whisper, Fance, he said, you... Hey, said the doctor, me. Did you think I was dead, too? We are not so easy to shut out our acquaintance. Hush, hush, exclaimed the doctor. Hush, hush, this meeting is so unexpected. I can see you are unmanned. I hardly knew you, I confess, at first, but I am overjoyed, overjoyed to have this opportunity, for the present it must be how do you do and goodbye in one, for my fly is waiting, and I must not fail the train. But you shall, let me see, yes, you shall give me your address. And you can count on early news of me. We must do something for you, Fats. I fear you are out at elbows. But we must see, so they're not an ogline, ogline, oh, old anxine. Is that how, that's how you pronounce it. Like the New Year's Eve song. Eh, my brain is trash. And once we sang at suppers. Money, cried Fetz, money from you. Oh, the money that I had from you is laying where I cast it in the rain. Dr. McFarlane had talked himself into some measure of superiority and confidence, but the uncommon energy of his refusal cast him back into his first confusion. Eh, a horrible, ugly look came and went across his almost venerable countenance. Oh, my dear fellow, he said, be it as you please that my last thought is to offend you, I would intrude on none. I will leave you my address, however. I do not wish it. I do not wish to know the roof that shelters you, interrupted the other. I heard your name. I feared it might be you. I wish to know if, after all, there were a god. I know now that there is none. Be gone! Well, that was weird. He stood in the middle of the rug. The turkey rug? Between the stair and the doorway. Yeah, the turkey rug. And the great London physician, in order to escape, would be forced to step uh, to, to one side and it was plain that he hesitated before he thought of this humiliation. White as he was, there was a dangerous glitter in his spectacles. But while he still paused uncertain, he became aware that the driver of his fly was peering in from the street at his usual scene and caught a glimpse at the same time of our little body from the parlor, huddled by the corner of the bar. The presence of so many witnesses decided him at once to flee. Now he crouched together, brushing on the waistcoat, and made a dart like a serpent, striking for the door. But his tribulation was not yet entirely at an end, for even as he was passing, Fetz clutched him by the arm, and these words came in a whisper, and yet painfully distinct. Have you seen it again? The great rich London doctor cried out aloud with a, a sharp, throttling cry, and he dashed his questioner across the open space, and, with his hands over his head, fled out the door ah, like a detected thief. Before it had occurred, uh, one or two had made a movement, and the fly was already rattling toward the station. The scene was over like a dream, but the dream had left proofs and traces of its passage. Next day, the servant found the fine gold spectacles broken on the threshold, and the very night were all standing breathless by the barroom window, and Fetz at her side, sober, pale, and resolute in look. 
God protect us, Mr. Fetz, said the landlord, coming first in possession of the cautionary senses. What in the universe is all this? What are these strange things you've been saying? Fetz turned toward us and looked at us, each in succession in the face. See if you can hold your tongues, he said. That man, McFarlane, is not safe to cross. Those that have done so already have repented it too late, and then, without so much as finishing his third glass, far less waiting for the other two, he bade us goodbye and went forth, under the lamp of the hotel, into the black night. We three turned our places in our parlor, and with a big red fire and four clear candles, as we recapitulated what had passed, the first chill of our surprise soon changed into a, a glow of curiosity. Oh, we sat late, is the latest session I have known in old George. Each man before he parted had his theory that he was bound to prove, and none of us had any nearer business in this world than to track our past of our condemned companion and sur- surprise the secret that had shared the great London doctor. It was no great boast, but I believe I was better hand at warming out a story than either of these, my fellows of the George, uh, and perhaps eh, there is now no other man alive who would narrate to you the following foul and unnatural events. Uh, in his young days, uh, Fetz studied medicine in the schools of Edinburgh. He had a talent of a kind, the talent that picks up swiftly uh, what it hears and readily retails it for its own. Uh, he worked a little at home, but was, he was a civil, attentive, and intelligent to the presence of his masters. They soon uh, picked him out as a lad who listened closely and remembered well. Nay, strange as it seemed to me when I first heard it, he was in those days uh, well-favored and pleased by his exterior. There was, at that period, a certain uh, extramural teacher of anatomy, whom I shall here designate by the letter K. Oh, it's another one of these. His name was subsequently too well-known, the man who bore it skulked through the streets of Edinburgh in disguise, while the mob that applauded at the execution of Burke called loudly for the blood of his employer. But Mr. K-Dash was at the top of his vote. He enjoyed a popularity due partly to his own talent and address, partly to the incapacity of his rival, uh, the university professor. The students at least swore by his name, and Fats believed himself that as was believed by others to have laid the foundations of success when he acquired a favor of this meteorically famous man. Mr. Kadash was a bon vivant, <laughs> as well as an accomplished teacher. He liked a sly illusion no less than a careful uh, preparation. In both capacities, Fats enjoyed and deserved his notice. And by the second year of his attendance, he held the half-regular position of second dem- demonstra- demonstrator all right, or sub-assistant in his class. We're doing this where we're going to take forever to get to some kind of point. We're dancing around the point. Uh, in his capacity, the charge of the theater and lecture room devolved in particular upon his... Sh- as soon as there's a dash after a letter for a person's name, you know it's going to be one of these kind of stories. He had to answer for the cleanliness and the premise of the conduct with the other students. And it was a part of the duty to supply, receive, and divide the various subjects. It was a, with a view to the last... And at that time, very delicate affair that was uh, lodged by Mr. Kadash in the same wind, W-Y-N-D. And at last, in the same building with the dissecting rooms, here, after a night of turbulent pleasures, ah, his hands still tottering and his sight still misty and confused, he had been called out of bed in the black hours before the winter dawn by the unclean and desperate interlopers who had supplied the table. He would open the door to these men 
since infamous throughout the land, and he would help them with their tragic burden, pay them their sordid price, and, and remain alone when they were gone, with the unfriendly relics of humanity. From each, or from such a scene, he would return to snatch another hour or two of slumber, to repair the abuses of the night and refresh himself for the labors of the day. Few lads could have been more insensible to the impressions of a life thus passed among ensigns of morality. His mind was closed against all general considerations. He was incapable of interest in the fate and fortunes of another, the slave of his own desires and low ambitions. Cold, uh, light, and selfish in the last resort, he had that modicum of prudence miscalled morality, which keeps a man from inconvenient drunkenness and punishable theft. He coveted, besides a measure of consideration from his master's fellow pupils, and had uh, no desire to fail conspicuously in the external parts of life. Thus he made it his pleasure to gain some distinction in his studies, and day after day rendered unimpeachable eye service to his employer, Mr. Kadash. For this day of work is indemnified himself by nights of roaring, blackardly enjoyment. And when that balance had been struck, the organ that he called his conscience declared itself content. The supply of subjects was a continual trouble to him as well as of his master, and in the large and busy class, the raw material of the anatomists kept perpetually running out, and the business thus rendered necessary not only unpleasant in itself, but threatened dangerous consequences to all those who were concerned. He was appalled to see Mr. Kadash to ask no questions in his dealings with the trade. Oh, Corpses. They bring the body and we pay the price, he used to say, dwelling on the alliteration. Quid uh, pro quo. And again, and somewhat profanely, uh, ask no questions, he would tell assistants, for conscience sake. There was no understanding that the subjects were provided by the same, by the crime of murder. Had that idea been broached to him in words, he would have recoiled in horror, but the lightness of his speech upon the grave matter was in itself an offense against good manners, and a temptation to the men with whom he had dealt. Fats, for instance, had often remarked to himself upon the singular freshness of the bodies, and even struck again and again by the hangdog abominable looks of the uh, ruffians who came in before the dawn, and putting things together clearly in his private thoughts. And he uh, perhaps attributed a meaning to a moral, to categorical, to the unguarded counsels of his master. He understood his duty, uh, in short, to have three branches, to take what he brought, uh, to pay the price, and to avert the eye from any evidence of crime. Coffee break. Oh, one November morning... This policy of silence was put sharply to the test. He had been awake all night with a racking toothache. Pacing his room, ah, like a, like a caged beast, or throwing himself in fury on the bed. He's like a big baby when it comes to it. And had fallen at last into the profound, uneasy slumber that so often follows on a night of pain. When he was awakened uh, by a third or fourth angry repetition of the uh, concerted signal, there was a thin, bright moonshine. Yeah, it was bitter cold, well, windy, frosty, and the town had not yet awakened, but an indefinable stir already preluded the noise and business of the day. The, the ghouls had come later than usual, and they seemed more than usually eager to be gone. Uh, Fats, sick with sleep, lighted them upstairs. He heard their grumbling, the uh, Irish voices, through a dream, 
As they stripped the sack from their sad merchandise, he leaned dozing with his shoulder propped against the wall and had to shake himself to find the men and their money. As he uh, did so, his eyes lighted on the dead face. He started, he took two steps nearer uh, with a candle raised. God Almighty, he cried. It's Jane Galbraith. The men answered nothing, and they shuffled near the door. I know her, I tell you, he continued. She was alive and hearty yesterday. It's impossible she could be dead. It's impossible that you should have got this body fairly. Sure, sir, you're mistaken entirely, said one of the men. But the other looked at Fetz, darkly in the eyes, and demanded the money on the spot. Oh, it's impossible to misconceive the threat or exaggerate the danger. The lad's heart failed him. He, he stammered some excuses, counted out the sum, and saw his hateful visitors depart. No sooner were they gone than he hastened to confirm his doubts by a dozen unquestionable marks. He identified the girl, and he had jested with the day before. Uh, he saw, uh, with horror, marks upon her body that might well betoken violence. Oh, a panic seized him, and he took refuge in his room. There, he's like a big baby, and he's like, ah, and runs away from the body and goes, dives in his room. There, he reflected at length over the discovery that he had made, considered soberly the bearing of Mr. Kadash's instructions and the danger to himself of interference is so serious a business, and at last, in sore perplexity, determined to wait for the advice of his immediate superior, the class assistant. This was a young doctor, Wolf McFarlane. Oh, here we go. Oh, a high favorite among all the reckless students, clever, uh, dissipated, and unscrupulous to the last degree. He had traveled and studied abroad. His manners were agreeable, uh, a little forward. Uh, he was an authority on the stage, uh, skillful on the ice or in the links with the skate of the golf club. He dressed uh, with nice audacity, and uh, to put the finishing touch upon his glory, he kept a gig. I know what a gig is. It's a, it's a horse carriage, a, a small one. And a strong trotting horse. Man, that fits with the gig. With Fetz, he was on terms of intimacy. Indeed, their relative positions called for some community of life. And when subjects were scarce, the pair would drive into the far into the country in McFarland's gig, visit, uh, desecrate some lonely graveyard, and return before dawn with their booty uh, to the door of the dissecting room. On that uh, particular morning, McFarlane arrived somewhat earlier than his wont. Fetz heard him and met him on the stairs, told him his story, and showed him the cause of his alarm. McFarlane examined the marks on her body. Yes, he said with a nod. It looks fishy. Uh, what should I do? asked Fence. Uh, do? repeated the other. Do you want to do anything? Least said soonest mended, I should say. Someone might uh, recognize her, objected Fence. She was well known as uh, Castle Rock. Well, hope not, said McFarlane. If anybody does, well, you didn't, uh, don't you see? And there's an end. The fact is that this has been going on too long. Stir up the mud, and you'll get Kadash into some most unholy trouble. You'll be in a shocking box yourself. Uh, so will I. And if it come to that, and I should like to know how any one of us would look or what the devil we should have to say for ourselves in any Christian witness box. For me, you know there's one thing certain, <laughs> that practically speaking, all our subjects have been murdered. McFarlane, cried Fetz. Oh, come on now, sneered the other, as if you hadn't suspected it yourself. Suspecting is one thing, and proof is another. Yes, I know. And I'm sorry as you are that this should have come. 
tapping the body with his cane. Oh, that's classy. The next best thing for me is not to uh, recognize it. And, he added coolly, I don't. You may, if you please. I don't dictate, but I think a man of the world would do as I do, and I may add, I fancy, that is what K-Dash would look for at our hands. The question is, uh, why did he choose us, too, for his assistance? And I answer, because he didn't want old wives. <laughs> this was the tone uh, that all others affected mind at a land like Fett's. He agreed to imitate McFarlane. The body of the unfortunate girl was duly dissected, and no one remarked or appeared to recognize her. One afternoon, when his day's work was over, Fetz dropped into a popular tavern and found McFarlane sitting with a stranger. This was a small man, a very pale and dark, with coal-black eyes. The cut of his features gave a promise of intellect uh, and refinement, which was but feebly realized in his manners, for he proved upon a, a near acquaintance, coarse, uh, vulgar, and stupid. He exercised, however, a very remarkable control over McFarlane, issued orders like the great Basha, that uh, became inflamed at the least discussion or delay, and uh, commented rudely on the servility of which he was obeyed. The most offensive person took a fancy to... Fats... <laughs> I thought it said fitness, on the spot, plied him with drinks, and honored him with unusual confidences on his past career. If a tenth part of what he confessed was true, it was a very loathsome rogue, and the lad's vanity was tickled by the attention of so experienced a man. Am I? Pretty bad fellow myself, the stranger remarked, but McFarlane is the boy. Toddy McFarlane, I call him. Toddy, order your friend another glass. Or it might be, Toddy, you jump up and shut the door. Oh, Toddy hates me, he said again. Oh, yes, Toddy, you do. Don't you call me that confounded name, growled McFarlane. Hear him. Did you ever see the lad's play knife? Oh, he could like to do that all over my body, remarked the stranger. We medicals have a better way than that, said Fetz. When we dislike a dead friend of ours, we dissect him. McFarlane looked up sharply, as though his jest were scarcely to his mind. The afternoon passed. Gray, for that was the stranger's name, invited Fetz to join them at dinner, ordered a feast so sumptuous that the tavern was thrown into a commotion, and when all was done, commanded McFarlane to settle the bill. It was late before they separated, and the man Gray was incapably drunk. Ah. McFarlane, sobered by his fury, chewed the cud of the money that he had been forced to squander and the slights he had been obliged to swallow. Fetz, with various liquors singing in his head, returned home with devious footsteps and a mind entirely in abeyance. And next day, McFarlane was absent from class, and Fetz smiled to himself as he imagined him still squirreling in the intolerable gray from tavern to tavern. As soon as the hour of liberty had struck, he posted from place to place in quest of his last night's companions. He could find them, uh, however, nowhere, and so returned early to his rooms, went to bed early, and slept the sleep of the just. At four in the morning, he was awakened by a well-known signal. Descending to the door, he was filled with astonishment to find McFarlane with his gig. And in the gig was one of those long and ghastly packages in which he was so well acquainted. Yeah, what? he cried. Have you been out alone? How did you manage? And McFarlane silenced him roughly, bidding him to turn to business. When they got the body upstairs and laid it on the table, McFarlane made it first as if he were going away, but then he paused and seemed to hesitate. And then 
You hadn't better look at the face, said he in tones of some constraint. You had better, he repeated, as Fats only stared at him in the wonder. Uh, but where and how? Uh, when did you come by it? cried the other. Look at the face, was the only answer. Uh, Fats was staggered. Strange doubts assailed him. He looked from the young doctor to the body and then back again. At last, with a start, he did as he was bidden. Uh, he had almost expected the sight uh, that met his eyes, and yet the shock was cruel. To see, fixed in the rigidity of death and naked on the coarse layer of sackcloth, the man whom he had left well clad and full of meat and sin upon the threshold of the tavern awoke even the thoughtless fats, some of the terrors of the conscience. It was a crass tibby which re-echoed his soul to whom he had, just say who it is, who had known he'd come to lie upon the icy tables. Yet those were only secondary thoughts. His first concern regarded Wolf. Unprepared for a challenge so momentous, he knew not how to look his comrade in the face. He durst not meet his eye, and had neither words nor voice at his command. It was McFarlane himself who had made the first advance. He came up quietly behind the lad, and hand gently but firmly on the other's shoulder. Richardson, said he, may have the head. Now, Richardson was a student who had long been anxious for that portion of the human subject to dissect. Yeah, there was no answer, and the murderer resumed, Talking of business, you must pay me. Your accounts, you see, must tally. Oh, Fetz found a voice, the ghost of his own. Pay you, he cried. Pay you for what? Why, yes, of course you must. And by all means, on every possible account, you must, returned the other. I dare not give it for nothing. You dare not take it for nothing. It would compromise us both. This is another case like Jane Galbraith's. The more things are wrong, the more we must act as if we were all right. Where does old Kate Ash keep his money? There, answered Fetz hoarsely, pointed to a cupboard in the corner. Hey, give me the key, then, said the other calmly, holding out his hand. Yeah, there was an instant's hesitation, and the die was cast. McFarlane could not suppress a nervous twitch. The infinitesimal mark of the immense relief, as he felt the key between his fingers, he opened the cupboard, brought out a pen and ink and paper that book that stood in one compartment and separated from the funds in the drawer as some suitable to the occasion. Now look here, he said. There is the payment made, first proof of your good faith, uh, first step to your security. You must now have to clinch it by the second. Enter the payment in your book, and then, for your part, may defy that devil. Well, the next few seconds were for fence and agony of thought, but in balancing his terrors, it was the most immediate that triumphed. Any future difficulty seemed almost welcome if he could uh, avoid a present quarrel with McFarlane. He set down the candle, which he had been carrying all this time, and with a steady hand, entered the date, the nature, and the amount of the transaction. And now, said McFarlane, it's only fair that you should pocket the lucre. Lucre. Eh, whatever. It's money, and I have had my share already. And by the by, when a man of the world falls into a bit of luck, he has a few shillings extra in his pocket. I'm ashamed to speak of it, but there's a rule of conduct on the case. No treating and no purchase of expensive class books. No squaring of old debts. Borrow, don't lend. Eh, uh, McFarlane, began Fats, still somewhat hoarsely. I have to put my neck in a halter to oblige you. Oh, to oblige me, cried Wolf. Oh, come. You did uh, as near as I could see the matter. But you downright had to do in self-defense. Suppose I got into trouble. Then where would you be? 
This second little matter flows clearly from the first. Mr. Gray is the continuation of Mrs. Galbraith. You can't begin, and then you can't stop. If you begin, you must keep on beginning. That's the truth. No rest for the wicked. <laughs> A horrible sense of blackness and treachery of fate seized upon the soul of the unhappy student. Oh, my God, he cried. But what have I done? And when did I begin? To be made a class assistant of the same reason. Hey, where's the harm in that? Service wanted the position. Service might have got it. Would he have been where I am now? Ah, my dear fellow, said McFarlane, what a boy you are. Ah, what harm has come to you? What harm can come to you if you hold your tongue? Why, a man, do you not know uh, what this life is? Ah, there are two squads of us, the lions and the lambs. If you're a lamb, you'll come to lie upon these tables like Gray or Jane Galbraith. If you're a lion, oh, you'll live and drive a horse like me, uh, like Kadash, like all the world with any wit or courage. Uh, you're staggered at the first, but look at Kadash. Oh, my dear fellow, you're clever. Uh, you, you got pluck, and I like you, and Kadash likes you. Uh, you were born to lead the hunt. And I tell you, on my honor and my experience of life, three days from now, you'll laugh at all these scarecrows like a high school boy at a farce. And with that, McFarlane took departure and drove up uh, the wind, W-Y-N-D, in his gig to set under the cover before daylight. Fats was thus left alone with his regrets. He saw a miserable peril in which he stood uh, involved, and he saw with inexpressible dismay that there was no limit to his weakness. Burp, and that from his... Why am I burping? I'm just drinking coffee, and I haven't eaten anything yet today. From concession to concession, he had fallen from the arbiter of McFarlane's destiny to his paid and helpless accomplice. Uh, he would have given the world to have been a little braver at the time, but it did not occur to him that he might still be brave. The secret of Jane Galbraith and the cursed entry into the daybook closed his mouth. Hours passed. The class began to arrive, and members of the unhappy Gray were dealt out uh, one to another and received without remark. Richardson uh, was made happy with the head, and before the hour of freedom rang, Fats trembled with exultation to perceive how far they had already gone towards safety. Uh, for two days, he continued to watch, uh, with increasing joy, the dreadful process of disguise, and on the third day, McFarlane made his appearance. Uh, he had been ill, he said. Then he made up some lost time by the energy with which he directed the students. To Richardson, in particular, he extended the most valuable assistance and advice, and the student, encouraged by the praise of the demonstrator, burned high with ambitious hopes and saw the medal already in his grasp. Before the week was out, McFarlane's prophecy had been fulfilled. Fats had outlived his terrors and had forgotten his baseness. I began to plume himself upon his courage and had so arranged the story in his mind that he would look back at these events with an unhealthy pride. Of his accomplish, he saw eh, but little. They met, of course, in the business, the class, and they received their orders together uh, from Mr. Kadash. At times, they had a word or, or two in private. Bob McFarlane was the first uh, to the last particularly kind uh, and jovial but it was plain that he avoided any reference to their common secret, and even when Fats whispered to him that he had cast his lot with the lions and forsworn the lambs, he had only signed to him smilingly to hold his peace. At length, an occasion arose, which uh, threw the pair once more closer to a union. Mr. Kadash was again short on subjects, 
Uh, the pupils were eager, the little hungry bastards, and it was part of his teacher's uh, pretensions to always be well supplied. At the same time, there came the news of a burial in the rustic graveyard of Glencore. Time has little changed the place in question. It stood then, as now, upon a crossroad, uh, out of all human habitations, and buried fathom deep in the foliage of six cedar trees, uh, the cries of sheep upon the neighboring hills, the steamlets upon the other hand, uh, one loudly singing among pebbles, and the other dripping furtively from pond to pond. The stir of the wind in the mountains, uh, old flowing chestnuts, and once in seven days the voice of the bell and the old tunes of the presenter were the only sounds that disturbed the silence around the rural church. The resurrection man, to use a by-name of the period, was not to be deterred by any of the sanctities of customary piety. We're doing it again. It is part of the trade to despise and desecrate the scrolls and trumpets of old tombs, the paths worn by feet and worshippers and mourners, and the offerings of the interceptions of bereaved affection to rustic neighborhoods uh, where love is more than commonly tenacious. Uh, we find some bonds of blood and the fellowship unite the entire society of the parish and the Body snatcher. The body snatcher, from being repelled by natural respect, was attracted by the ease and the safety of the task. To bodies that had been laid in earth in the joyful expectation of a far different wakening, there came that hasty lamplit terror, a haunted resurrection of the spade and mattock. The coffin that was forced. The cremants torn and the melancholy relics, clad in sackcloth after being rattled for hours on moonless byways, were at length exposed to the utmost indignities before a class of gaping boys. Somewhat as the two vultures may swoop upon a dying lamb, Fetz and McFarlane were to be let loose upon a grave in that green and quiet resting place. The wife of a farmer, a woman who had lived for sixty years, had been known for nothing but good butter and godly conversation, was to be uprooted from her grave at midnight and carried dead and naked eh, eh, to the faraway city. Why are they burying him naked? Uh, where she had always been honored with her Sunday best, and placed beside her family to be empty till the crack of doom, her innocent and almost venerable members to be exposed to that last curiosity of the anatomist. All right. Late one afternoon... Oh, the pair set forth, well wrapped in their cloaks and furnished with a formidable bottle. It rained uh, without remission, uh, cold, dense, lashing rain. Now and again, there blew a, a puff of wind. Yeah, but the sheets were falling water and kept it down, the bottle and all. And it was a sad and silent drive as far as Pennewick, where they were to spend the evening. Uh, they stopped once to hide their implements in a thick bush not far from the churchyard. And once again, at the Fisher's Tryst, to have a toast before the kitchen fire and vary their nips of whiskey with a glass of ale. When they reached their journey's end, the gig was housed, the horse was fed and comforted, and the two young doctors in a private room sat down to the best dinner and the best wine the house offered. Uh, the lights, the fire, the beating rain on the window, the cold incongruous work that lay before them added zest ah, to their enjoyment of the meal. And with every glass, their cordiality increased. Soon McFarlane handed a little pile of gold to his companion. Mm, mm, a compliment, he said, between friends. These little duh-accommodations uh, ought to fly like pipe lights. Fats pocketed the money and applauded the sentiment with an echo. You are a philosopher, he cried. And I was an ass till I knew you, you and Kadash, between you and by the Lord Harry, but you'll make a man of me. Oh, of course we shall, applauded McFarlane. A man? 
I tell you, it required a man to back me up the other morning. There were some big, brawling, 40-year-old cowards who would have turned sick at the look of the D-D thing. Is it dead thing? Is he covering up the word dead with a dash between the Ds? But not you. You kept your head. I watched you. Well, and why not? Fetz thus vaunted himself. It was no affair of mine. There was nothing to gain on one side but disturbance, and on the other I could count on your gratitude. Don't you see? And he slapped his pocket till the gold pieces rang. McFarlane somehow felt a certain touch of alarm at these unpleasant words. He may have regretted uh, that he had taught his young companion so successfully, but he had no time to interfere, for the other noisily continued in his boastful strain, Ah, the great thing is not to be afraid. Now, between you and me, I don't want to hang. That's practical. Uh, but for all can't, McFarlane, I was born with a contempt. Hell, God, devil, right, wrong, sin, crime, how long does this go on for? And all the old gallery of curiosities. Oh, they may frighten boys, but men of the world, like you and me, despise them. Here's to the memory of Gray. It was by this time growing somewhat late that the gig, according to the order, was brought round to the door with both lamps uh, brightly shining, and the young men had to pay their bill and take the road. They announced that they were bound for Peebles, and drove in that direction until they were clear of the last house of the town, then, extinguishing the lamps, returned upon their course, and followed by a by-road toward Glencourse. There was no sound but that of their own passage, uh, and the incessant striding, pouring of the rain. It was a pitch here, uh, dark there, while a white gate or a white stone in the wall guided them for a short pace uh, across the night. But for the most part, it was a foot pace, and almost groping that they picked their way through the resonant blackness to their solemn and isolated destination. In the sunken woods, they had traversed the neighborhood of the burying ground till the last glimmer failed them. It became necessary to kindle a match and reilluminate uh, one of the lanterns of the gig. Thus, under dripping trees, envisioned by huge and moving shadows, they reached the scene of their unhallowed labors. They were both experienced in such affairs and, and powerful with the spade and that they scarce had been twenty minutes at their task before they were rewarded by a dull rattle in the coffin lid. And at the same moment, McFarlane, having hurt his hand upon the stone, uh, flung it carelessly above his head. The grave in which they now stood almost to the shoulders was close to the edge of the plateau of the graveyard, and the gig lamp, which had been propped to better illuminate their labors against a tree, on the immediate verge of the steep bank descending down the stream. Oh my God, it's happening again. He's dancing around the point. Chance had taken sure to aim at the stone, and then came a clang of broken glass. Night fell upon them. Sounds alternately dull and ringing announced the bounding of the lantern down the bank and, and its occasional collision with trees. A stone or two, uh, which had dislodged, oh my God, just get to the point, rattled behind it profoundly with the glen, and then the silence, like the night, resumed its sway. They might bend their hearing upon the utmost pitch, but naught was to be heard except the rain, now marching to the wind, now steadily falling over miles of open country. Yeah, they were so nearly at an end of their abhorred task that they judged it wisest to complete it in the dark. The coffin was exhumed and broken open, the body inserted uh, in the dripping sack and carried between them to the gig. One mounted to keep in its place, and the other, taking the horse by the mouth, groped along by the wall and bush till they reached the wider road of the Fisher's Tryst. Here was a faint, diffused radiancy, which they hailed like daylight. 
By that, they pushed the horse to a good pace and began to rattle along merrily in the direction of the town. They had both been wetted to the skin during their operations, and now the gig jumped among the deep ruts. The thing that stood prop between them fell now uh, upon one and now on the other. Every repetition of the horrid contact, gross, was instinctively repelled by its greater haste, and the process, uh, natural though it was, began to tell upon the nerves of the companions. McFarlane had made some ill-favored jest about the farmer's wife, but it came hollowly from his lips and allowed it to drop into silence. Still, their unnatural burden bumped from side to side, and now the head would be laid as if in confidence upon their shoulders, and now the drenching sackcloth would flap icily about their faces. A creeping chill began to possess the fold. Fats peered at the bundle, and it seemed somehow larger than at first. All over the countryside and from every degree of distance, the farm dogs accompanied their passage with tragic undulations, and it grew and grew upon the mind that some unnatural miracle had been accomplished, that some uh, nameless change had befallen the dead body, and that it was in fear of their unholy burden that the dogs were howling. Oh, for God's sake, said he, making a great effort to arrive at a speech, for God's sake, let's have a light. Seemingly, McFarlane had effected in the same direction, for... Though he had made no reply, he stopped the horse, passed the reins to his companion, got down, and proceeded to kindle the remaining lamp. They had by that time no further than the crossroad down the Ochinalini. Apparently that's the name of a town. The rain still poured as though the deluge were returning. And it was no easy matter to make light in such a world of wet and darkness. When at last the flickering blue flame had been transferred to the wick and began to expand and clarify... It shed a wide circle of misty brightness around the gig. It became possible for the two young men to see the other in the thing that they had been riding along with. The rain had molded the rough sacking to the outlines of the body underneath. The, the, the head was distinct from the trunk. The, the shoulders plainly molded, gross. Something of one spectral human riveted their eyes upon the ghastly comrade of their drive. For some time, McFarlane stood motionless, holding up the lamp, a nameless dread was swathed like a wet sheet about the body and tightened the white skin upon the face of fence. A fear that was meaningless, a horror of what could not be, he kept mounting to his brain. Another beat to the watch, and he had spoken, but his comrade forestalled him. That is not a woman, said McFarlane in a hushed voice. It was a woman when we put her in, whispered Fetz. Yeah, hold the lamp, said the other. I must see her face. And as Fetz took the lamp, his companion united the festerings of the sack and drew down the cover from the head. The light fell very clear upon the dark, well-molded features and smooth, shaven cheeks of a too-familiar countenance often beheld in dreams of both these young men. A wild yell rang up into the night. Each leapt from his own side of the roadway, and the lamp fell, broke, and was extinguished. They're constantly breaking lamps. And the horse... Terrified by the unusual commotion, bounded and went off toward Edinburgh at a gallop, bearing along with it the sole occupant of the gig, the body and the of the dead and long dissected Gray. Well, uh, that was weird. A uh, little overview. Fetz winds up telling the story about how him and uh, McFarlane uh, 
we're getting bodies. And uh, McFarlane keeps killing people. He kills a woman that he knows. And then uh, he goes to hang out with McFarlane and a man named Gray. And Gray's a big jerk. And so the next day, Gray shows up dead. And McFarlane says, here, use this body uh, for your autopsies at your school. And then, uh, and then uh, Fence mans up. Says, I want to get in the business. And so, oh boy, he's out there getting bodies too. Bringing them back. And talks about how much of a man he is. And then they finally go out on this run uh, to a church graveyard to go dig up a woman's body and bring her back. And uh, they wind up getting Gray's body, which has been dissected. So the horror of this is that Gray's body got reburied and they accidentally dug it up. It's not really a ghost. It's more like a clerical error. What's good about this? Uh, It didn't dive off into uh, too much roundabout talking and never getting to the point. Oh. Well, apparently my smoke alarm decided to do a test. That's pretty cool. Right in the middle of the show. Uh, so it started to, and around the time it started to complain is when it would pick up and get to the point. So that was kind of nice. And then uh, beyond that, uh, I guess, yeah, that's kind of it. It was short. Uh, what sucks? That the ending wasn't the scariest thing. It just seemed confusing. Uh, so Gray's body's there. I'm sure there's a rational explanation for that. Nothing supernatural. Nothing to... Uh, Scare you for the rest of your life. What did we learn? Well, I don't even remember what I talked about in the first segment. Uh, I think about just being a man. We learned about being a man. I'm a man. And I talked about at the beginning of the show how I'm a man. And now we learn that the benefits of being a man is that you can haul corpses around and and be kind of proud of it. And I'd be pretty proud of that, too, if I had the ability to do it. Well, this is meandering. Uh, well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or want to look up old shows, uh, go to nuzzlehouse.com.